turn in God's inspired word this morning to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah 46. Bell boweth down, Nebo stoopeth. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon the cattle. Your carriages were heavy loaden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop. They bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. Hearken unto me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, which are born by me from the belly, which are carried from the womb, and even to your old age I am he, and even to whore hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal? And compare me that we may be like. They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver in the balance and hire a goldsmith. And he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet he can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. consider this morning the first commandment of God's law from Exodus 20 verse 3 thou shalt have no other gods before me the exposition of that as well as the introduction to the Ten Commandments is found in Lord's Day 34 of our Heidelberg Catechism Lord's A 34 with questions and answers 92 through 95. What is the law of God? And then follows the words of the Ten Commandments that we heard earlier. How are these commandments divided? Into two tables, the first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God the second, what duties we owe to our neighbor. What doth God enjoin in the first commandment? That I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, trust in him alone, with humility and patience submit to him, expect all good things from him only, love, fear, and glorify him with my whole heart, 
so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we begin the treatment of the Ten Commandments as God's rule for our life. That is, the rule of how we shall express our gratitude to God for what he has given us in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When it comes to the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the law as it begins in Lord's Day 34, it's necessary for us to remember a few things. In fact, sometimes... Oftentimes, I would preach an introduction to the law from questions and answers 92 and 93 before going into the treatment of the first commandment. So by way of introduction, I remind you of some of the things that were undoubtedly called to your attention in consideration of our life of true conversion. First of all, the law comes to us who are the children of God by adoption in Jesus Christ. That is the significance of, and we must never overlook this, the introduction to the law found both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. I am Jehovah. Thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The God who speaks to us this word of these Ten Commandments is Jehovah, the I Am, unchangeably faithful in realizing the covenant that he has established with his people in Christ. He's the one who led us out of the house of bondage. And that reference is not merely to, to God's deliverance from his people out of the bondage of Egypt in which they were held as slaves. The reference is to what that land of Egypt and its bondage represented to the people of God. It represented the power of sin and death that holds us. And the Lord said, I am Jehovah, thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He has delivered us. He has delivered us in and by Jesus Christ. That was true even in the Old Testament though by types and shadows, by promise, that deliverance, you remember, came by the shed blood of the Lamb being smeared on the, on the doorposts of the houses of God's people, and it continued by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, the, the manna in the wilderness, pointing to the bread of life, the water provided by God, pointing to the coming Messiah as the water of life. So the law, as we consider it in the coming weeks, comes to us who are redeemed, who are delivered by the precious blood of our Savior. In the second place, we have to remember that the law is not merely a code of precepts. It is the revelation of the will of God for his covenant people, his redeemed covenant people, in the midst of this world. That's the only way we can properly understand the law and receive it and delight in it and obey it. So that 
when we consider true conversion, so also here, concerning the law, we have to remember the underlying principle is love. Love fulfilled by Christ, and therefore love that now lives in our hearts by those united to Christ by a true faith. It's love for God because we know his love for us in Christ Jesus. It's the love, therefore, that delights to do the will of God. It is true that as we consider the Ten Commandments, we are going to find our sinfulness exposed by each one of those commandments. The holy God stands before us. Not one can stand before the holiness of God and not cover his or her face. We're going to see our need to confess our sins before God. The law most certainly will remind us of the glory of our Redeemer. Apart from him, not one of us could be saved. So again, underlying our treatment of the Ten Commandments must be our redemption, our deliverance, our salvation in Christ Jesus. The Christian life, is never a matter of man first, of man doing something to obtain God's approval. My acceptance with God is because of what Christ has done. That results by the work of his Holy Spirit in my heart through the word in a sincere joy of heart that delights to express my gratitude to God by living according to his will in all good works. And that will of God comes to expression in his word, including his Ten Commandments. Those two tables of the law, covered front and back with the Ten Commandments, is indicative of the complete expression of how God would have us live. It is so in summary, so we are called to expound that law by Holy Scripture. The Scriptures shed light on each of the commandments so that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can get by merely by living according to the letter of the law. We need to see what each of those commandments says to us. We go to the word of God, therefore, to be taught by him how we shall express our gratitude for so great a deliverance. The Ten Commandments are his rule for us to express our love, our thankfulness to him. And as we come now before the first commandment, we find there God's rule for our life, having him as God alone. We take that as our theme this morning, God's rule for our life, having him as God alone. And as we consider that theme, we do so under three points. First of all, knowing him. Secondly, trusting him. Thirdly, glorifying him. Immediately after explaining the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me in terms of fleeing all forms of idolatry, the catechism states positively that we are to learn rightly to know the only true God. To flee all idolatry, we have to know God as the God set apart, the only true God. The Catechism immediately notes how serious this is when it sets forth the first commandment in terms that I, as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, 
avoid and flee from all idolatry and learn rightly to know the only true God. You realize that knowledge of which we speak here is the knowledge which is life eternal. Referred to in John 17, verse 3. It is to know God as the one who alone can and does save us. He alone can because he's the only true God. When the Lord says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it means he alone is God. We read it in Isaiah 46. Verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That God is God is set forth, you notice, against the contrast of those who make their own gods and bow down before them and look to them for deliverance who cannot deliver. That God is God is not just a statement that marks the essence of the Reformed faith. It's a reality that marks our very existence. He is the only one we may serve and the only one we must serve. He created us to serve him and to love him and to praise and glorify him with all that we say and do and all that we are. That's positively the summary of the first commandment. It's not without reason that this commandment is first. It speaks most directly of our relationship to God. That relationship is to be an exclusive relationship. It is to be such a relationship, an exclusive relationship, that is governed by love and therefore jealous of any breach in that relationship. A proper view of the law can only be maintained by a proper view of God himself. That's, that this is true is seen by an examination of Satan's approach to Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You might remember that the devil approaching Eve in the serpent moved from questioning the clarity of what God required. Is it really so that God said, to questioning God's truthfulness and authority. You shall not surely die. What Satan was really doing was attacking God's character. What kind of a God would deny you pleasure, Eve, if he really loved you? And so Satan drew Eve's mind away from hers and Adam's relationship to God and made the focus entirely negative. Rather than seeing the beauty of their creator and the glory of the relationship that they enjoyed with him, rather than seeing the abundance that he had commanded them to enjoy, she was drawn by the devil's device to focus merely on one negative command. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. 
And that one negative command would become her fixation. Now her sight of that one tree, as Satan directed that sight, obscured her vision of who God is and what he had given her and Adam in a world abounding in his good gifts for them to enjoy. In her mind and affections, God's law was now divorced from the glory of her creator. And with that conception of things, idolatry is a given. Once the law is divorced from a loving relationship to God, idolatry is a given. In Eve's case, what Satan sowed in her mind as a suspicion of God and his purpose in forbidding anything soon bore fruit in her rebellion against him. To begin to look at God merely as lawgiver and judge is to embrace a distorted view of him. Rather than seeing him as a loving creator who seeks our good, we also who have fallen with Adam see him as essentially a forbidding God. Rather than embracing the law as the wisdom of a loving heavenly father. We see that law merely as deprivation. That is that which deprives us of what we want. What we deceive ourselves into looking at as our need, that which we think is for our good, we set ourselves up as God. That's idolatry. The lie of separating the law from a proper view of God himself mutates and degenerates into a violation of all God's commandments. That's the lie of legalism too. It's the lie that believes that to glorify God cannot be to enjoy him and to enjoy the comfort that is ours in his fellowship. Rather, he must be viewed as the one who would deprive us of joy by forbidding us this or that. So if we are going to approach the law correctly, and live as those who love God's law, we have to see God himself in truth. We have to see him as the one who is our heavenly father for Jesus' sake, who has loved us with such a great love, an eternal love, that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, his only begotten son taking that curse upon himself, in perfect obedience to God for our salvation. To know the only true God, to trust in him alone, is the key to understanding and obeying the first commandment. So we have to stand before the glory of our God. Also this morning, Thou shalt have no other gods before me is a negative. The positive of which is thou shalt have me. God alone, the God of thy salvation, as thy God, thou shalt have me before thee. Then we stand, first of all, before the greatness of our God. He's in every respect infinite. Try to explain what that means. We don't know by experience what infinite is. 
because we are finite, limited from every point of view, limited in understanding, limited in abilities, limited in time, limited. God is without limit. He's transcendent, far above all things. Solomon, with all the wisdom God had given him, prayed at the time of the dedication of the temple, his eyes fixed upon the glory of Jehovah. He said in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him. How much less this house that I have built? Jeremiah, in confronting the idolatry found among those who called themselves the people of God, proclaimed in Jeremiah 10, verses 10 through 13, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble and the nation shall not be able to abide his indignation. Thus shall ye say unto them, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. Mind you, the same God who created all things exercises his dominion over all things in heaven and on earth. He does so without limits, accomplishing perfectly his own good pleasure. He's the one who says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. God is also one. I am God and there is none else, we heard in the chapter that we read, Isaiah 46. That's also Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. That means not only that he is one in himself and that all his virtues are one in him, but that means that Jehovah our God is the only God that ever can exist, the only God who must be served by us. Because our God is one Lord. We may not have idols of any kind competing with him in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. When we say that God is God, we mean also that he's independent. You and I, together with every creature, you and I are entirely dependent. We are dependent upon God, our creator and sustainer. We like to think sometimes in our idolatrous minds that we are independent. We choose our own pathway. We make our own decisions and choices. That we can live as we well please without answering to anyone but ourselves or facing any consequences. We tend to hearken back to that old saying of Satan. You shall be as God. But you know as well as I because God reminds us often we cannot so much as move without his will. We cannot take a breath except he gives it to us. 
every heartbeat is in his hands. But when we say that God is God, we also confess he is good. He's perfect in all his virtues. He not only has knowledge, he is knowledge. He not only has love, he is love. He is his virtue. In all his virtues, he seeks the glory of his own name as the only good God. He reveals his goodness to his creatures too, providing for all. But to his people in Christ, his goodness is revealed in a magnificent way. He saves. He saves sinners. He delivers from the bondage of sin and death. He lifts us up from the lowest hell to the highest glory. And in doing so, he reveals his absolute sovereignty. He makes all things work together for good to them that love him. To those who are the called according to his purpose. And he does so, as we read in Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. And I will do all my pleasure, calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. And so he said in verse 13, I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. What peace there is in knowing this only true God. But you realize that such knowledge itself is a wonder of divine grace. If we do not know him, we are quickly caught up in that which the first commandment forbids, namely idolatry of every sort. While the Catechism mentions a sampling when it speaks of idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or other creatures, it broadens things significantly when it answers the question, what is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Then you see, our sins are exposed even in our idolatry of self, of putting self before God and his word and will. To know God is absolutely necessary for all that we must do in relationship to him even in our perspective toward the living God. But to know the infinite and glorious God, the perfectly holy one, exalted over all the earth, it is necessary that God reveals himself to us. And he does. He speaks to us in all the works of his hand. But it's not that revelation that will move us to bow before him and to trust in him, to submit to him, to expect all good things from him, to love, fear, and glorify him with our whole heart. God must reveal himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. 
We must know him in Jesus Christ. For in him God became flesh. In his only begotten son, God revealed himself standing in relationship of love to us. Love by which he would deliver us and draw us unto himself. God comes to us and says, I am the Lord, thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, to you, idolatrous people, to you who were in the bondage of sin and death, I have come to save you. So he speaks to us by his gospel. And we come to church to hear him. We want to know him more and more. The question is asked nowadays, why do you have to go to church twice? Most churches have quit holding a second worship service. The Bible doesn't command us to gather twice on the Lord's Day. Why do we worship twice? We want to know him. We want to hear him who has so loved us. We want to know him more and more. We want to know him by the scriptures. We want to know him rightly. We desire to know the only true God as he has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ who now speaks to us, who died for us, who rose again, who sits at the right hand of God ex executing God's sovereign counsel and good pleasure, who has received the Holy Spirit without measure and poured out that Holy Spirit upon his beloved bride, his church. We must know that he is gracious. We must know his tender mercies. We must know that in spite of our idolatrous natures, our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. We must know the relationship in which we now stand to that glorious, only true God. A relationship of children before their heavenly Father. To stand before him in Jesus Christ as his adopted children is to avoid and flee all idolatry. It is to love the Lord our God for who he is. And to such a degree that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to his will. To have him as God alone is to know him in that way. The second positive command that underlies this first commandment is that we are to trust in God alone. You understand that follows from such knowledge of him. There is no trusting someone you stand in enmity toward. But knowing the only true God as your deliverer, your Savior, your faithful Father for Jesus' sake, you trust in him alone. You recognize, of course, the sinful nature that we have to fight constantly. We're quickly inclined to trust in ourselves or in others and not even give thought to God. That's idolatry. So we have the warning in Jeremiah 17, verse 5, for example. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm, 
whose heart departeth from the Lord. And then positively in verse 7, blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. We are also warned by the example of King Asa, king of Judah, as we read about his life in 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16, we find in Asa a king who feared the Lord, who did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Asa had a peaceful reign until there came out against them Zerah the Ethiopian, with an host of a thousand thousand and three hundred chariots. Asa took his sizable army of three hundred thousand, about which we are told all were mighty men of valor. But Asa didn't trust in his military. He didn't trust in his mighty men of valor. We read in Second Chronicles 14 verse 10 that Asa went out against his enemies and prepared his men for the battle but then we read this in verse 11 and Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said Lord it is nothing with thee to help whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Jehovah was his God. He knew God's sovereignty. He knew God's strength. He knew Jehovah's faithfulness to his covenant. And with that knowledge, Asa trusted in him. But sadly, we also see the weakness of Asa's faith at the end of his life. And don't think that when we get older... We can get by with our experience and our smarts. It might just be in our elderly years that we are put to the test concerning this first commandment and called especially to trust in our Heavenly Father and the work that He is accomplishing for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we read in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 12, And Asa, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not to the Lord, but to physicians. Now that doesn't mean to imply that we may not use physicians and that when we suffer affliction, we only have to trust in the Lord. God does use means. And scripture elsewhere speaks of medicine as a good gift of God, including those physicians who serve God's people and serve God's purpose in caring for those who are afflicted. But as with Asa, so with us, it's all too easy in our afflictions to trust in the doctors, to do what they say without question, and fail even to look to the Lord as the one who sovereignly governs our afflictions and our healing or lack of healing. 
we are called in the first commandment to trust in him alone. Even while using means, our trust is to be in the one who alone uses those means for our profit. And that, no matter the outcome, he is the good God all the time for us, his people in Christ. Trust means that you know that God loves you for Jesus' sake, and therefore you know that he will never do anything that does not work for your salvation. That trust is to be marked by humility and patient submission. Humility to, is to acknowledge that God is God alone. It is to acknowledge that God is God in all that happens in our lives and in all the pathway of our life. Humility is to confess that we are dependent upon our Heavenly Father and we are subject to His ways. But that humility belonging to that trust by which we rest in our Savior is to know that God's way is far better than the way that we might choose, even when his way is higher than our way and his thoughts than our thoughts. And trust also comes to expression in patient submission. Having God as God alone in our lives means that we know our need for patience. In our dependence upon him, we pray for patience. That's especially true in the face of adversity. And when we talk about patient submission, we aren't simply talking about putting our heads down and toughing things out. This submission speaks of endurance. Patience is that spiritual virtue which God gives us and by which we endure the suffering of this present time knowing that the God whom we serve is faithful and powerful to deliver us. So we expect all good things from him only. Yes, there's sadness in our lives. And there are times when the way is very dark. That's part of living in this fallen world surrounded by the effects of sin and death. But we belong to our faithful Savior. Jesus Christ. We hear the first commandment preceded by the words, I am the Lord, thy God. Have no other gods before me. Trust in me alone. Everything, therefore, that God sends us in this veil of tears comes not by chance, but by his fatherly hand and for our salvation. When we know him that way, as the, as the God who is God alone and our God and Father for Jesus' sake, we delight to have him as God alone and to trust in him. Finally, God's rule for our life in having him as God alone is that we love, fear, and glorify him with our whole heart. Again, people of God, you, you see that we keep the law very imperfectly. Jesus alone fulfilled this law for us. Loving God perfectly, fearing him without wavering, glorifying him entirely, but our Savior abides with us. He lives in us by his Holy Spirit. So we love, fear, and glorify God with our whole heart 
that expression, with my whole heart, means with all that I am. Notice again, the catechism speaking from that personal viewpoint of that personal confession, that I, so that you must say, with all that I am, with my mind, my thinking and willing, I renounce all creatures and serve him who is God alone. With my soul, with my body, with my marriage, in my family, in church, in the workplace, in sickness and in health, I love, fear, and glorify God alone. That's the first commandment. Do you understand then how beautiful it is to hear Jehovah God say to you and to me, I am the Lord, thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. How necessary it is to see the wonder of our salvation as we stand before the law. It is only by that life of Christ that is ours that we renounce, and renounce we must, and forsake, yes, that's true conversion, we renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least thing contrary to the will of our faithful Heavenly Father. Amen. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we thank Thee for Thy law, for the first commandment, even though it exposes to us our sinfulness. We thank Thee that Thou hast given us Thy law in the context of its introduction and of the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.